Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Dr. Heather Lynn back with us. She was last on with me back in October of 2015. She's an author, historian, a renegade archaeologist, definitely on a quest to uncover the truth behind ancient mysteries. She holds numerous degrees and certificates in both history and archaeology, a member of the professional organizations including the American Historical Association, the Society for Historical Archaeology, Association of Ancient Historians and World Archaeological Congress. She has left a life in academia to pursue this fascination with the unexplained and investigates ancient mysteries, lost civilizations, hidden history, ancient aliens, and the occult. Heather, welcome back. Hi, George. Thanks for having me. Good job with evil archaeology, by the way. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Hey, explain the the little statuette on the cover. Uh, That is Pazuzu. That is an ancient Mesopotamian demon. Uh, I put him on the cover because it was sort of uh, this demon that inspired me. Sort of of inspired. I I hesitate to use that word. Inspired Um, by a demon, huh? Right. I mean, that's sort of what I look at in the book is this question of inspiration. Is that enough to constitute uh, a a step towards possession? Uh, But it was actually the movie The Exorcist. That uh, the beginning scene of both the book and the movie is set in Iraq at an archaeological excavation. At the site, a priest archaeologist feels a strong wind blow, and it's foreshadowing the arrival of this demon Pazuzu, which is the demon of the southwestern wind and bearer of storms and drought in Assyrian and Babylonian mythology. And uh, so this is the demon that's on the cover. As an archaeologist, it sort of piqued my interest and spurred me to question the relationship between demons of ancient Mesopotamia and now, because it wasn't long after seeing the movie play on cable reruns that I saw a news story that caused me to pause for a moment. On October 5th, 2014, sheriff's deputies in Clemens, North Carolina, raided a suburban home and discovered the remains of two men who had been missing since about 2009. At first, it seemed sort of sadly, as a run-of-the-mill news story until I heard the name of the killer was Pazuzu. So before legally changing his name from John Lawson, this Pazuzu, Mm. yeah, he he grew up in a a picturesque suburb. He had a seemingly normal life, um, but he clearly struggled with uh, what his mother said were mental health issues. And so he went on to recruit a brotherhood of other disenfranchised people that would go on to help him torture murder, and then cannibalize local strangers, and then bury them in the backyard of his home. So according to the psychiatric reports, the killer said he practiced a Sumerian religion that involved a monthly blood sacrifice, usually of a small animal, at least to begin with. Um, He said he'd have to perform this ritual during what he called the Black Moon in order to appease the Sumerian demons and to honor Pazuzu. So this really just stuck out at me. I thought, so maybe Mesopotamian demons could sort of still be dwelling among us in some way. Uh, you know, to be clear, the, the killer is a 100% to blame for his actions. Sure. So I just started thinking about, you know, what does it mean to be inspired? The word inspire comes from Latin, uh, inspirare, meaning to breathe or blow into. And the word originally described when specifically a supernatural being imparted an idea to somebody. So this related then to the concept of doing something in the spirit of or in spirit. So it just, it may be splitting hairs over the semantics, but it was enough to sort of then, I guess, inspire me to investigate the possible connections between 
the world of ancient Mesopotamian demons, the history of demons, and and what their role is now in our current modern society. Well, this individual was obviously whacked out nuts and insane, but he understood his ancient archaeology, didn't he? To an extent. He was very, he was very much interested in it. Uh, he did flourish and embellish the sort of religious aspect of the Sumerian belief system. Uh, they didn't really have that practice in the way that he claimed, but uh, he didn't really claim that it was historically accurate. He believed he was a, a prophet, for be- lack of a better word, that he was able to fill in those gaps for people and, and go on to make this religion, or at least try to start this this mode of practice. And yes, he was clearly, psych- he had psychiatric problems. He ended up uh, killing himself, uh, or at least they found him in a pool of his own blood in the prison where he was being held. He said that he needed to do this black moon sacrifice. Otherwise, he was afraid that this demon, Pazuzu, would kill him. And they obviously, no, nobody was going to let him do something so heinous and ridiculous, but he insisted that his life was in danger. Well, sure enough, that the next day they find him in a pool of his own blood with broken ribs, scratches all over his body, and uh, he had basically bled out after having a a scratch so deep that it, it perforated his brachial artery. So uh, they ruled it a suicide, but Heather, what do you th- tragic. What do you think might have happened during the ancient days, way back, in terms of demonology and, and events? Did, did something supernatural occur, in your opinion? I think something strange occurred. I, I, I guess we could call it supernatural or maybe supernatural, I think when you look back at history, specifically prehistory, it's it's difficult to obviously pinpoint it, but uh, scientists do agree that there was something that happened in the brain. They call it the big brain bang or sometimes just the leap. So something happened in our consciousness that sparked some sort of different way of thinking, some sort of religious you know, thoughts. And people have all sorts of theories on what this was. Some believe it has to do with access to uh, psychedelic mushrooms. Uh, some people believe that it has more to do with how we started cooking food and releasing certain substances and, and whatnot. So there's many different theories, but we do know that at least scientifically, structurally, physically, something happened. And that something correlates with the religious experience and some of these stranger aspects of the religious experience, such as demons. Heather, let's talk about your life as a renegade archaeologist. What is that? Well, um, that's... I, I can I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, for one, I was willing to come on the show after Alex Jones, even though I've received nasty <laughs> emails all day about it. So <laughs> I, I, but I, I left the mainstream to uh, pursue a fascination with these subjects that some people call fringe. Uh, most of the topics you discuss every night here on Coast... Uh, as a renegade, I, I didn't. I did not continue to follow the vocational path I was on in traditional academia. Uh, so I, I started out, you know, just the typical way, and then I started seeing things I just didn't agree with, and you know, I, I ended up reaching out to uh, Michael Cremo, the author good, of Forbidden Archaeology. Yeah, good, great, great, and he gave me some really helpful advice and inspired me to, you know, continue on and and take all the tools that. I could get from the ivory tower and bring them out and apply them to something a little more interesting, I guess you should say. But, uh, you know, so I just basically don't blindly accept 
the word of academics and nor alternative or independent researchers. I think that the cult of personality is threatening the validity of alternative research. I think researchers of all backgrounds shouldn't position themselves as gurus rather than a scholar um, because gurus seek followers and scholars seek challenges. Uh, so I think that through the respectful challenging of ideas, we can arrive at a more complete picture of the truth. And so, you know, a true scholar, in my opinion, welcomes the challenge because they see it not as a threat, but as an opportunity to grow, grow closer to the truth, uh, especially today. Sure. We need, you know, to work to create a strong public discourse about these sorts of issues, and especially when it comes to history. It's so important. One of my favorite quotes that really sums it up is from Orwell's 1984. It's, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. You know, that said, I, I believe the landscape of history is where the battle for our future is taking place right now. One of the keys to your book, Evil Archaeology, uh, is the uh, underlying title, Demons, Possessions, and Sinister Relics. In your opinion, what are demons? Well, it's... There's a couple different things. There's the material aspect of demons, which I look at in, in, in the book. Um, so I trace the artifacts and the material culture. And so you have these figurines, like the one on the cover or any others, and you can trace sort of their evolution uh, through time with events like religious syncretism, where uh, people started to adopt these figures, rename them, put them with other ones, make amalgamations of them, and so on. And so you have these deities that generally look like horrible little creatures or the devil, cloven hooves, this sort of thing. And that idea emerged years after the church was literally demonizing pagan demons. You can see this clearly in the case of Pan, the ancient Greek figure represented nature, fertility, music, and all sorts of fun. Uh, but eventually the church used the figure of Pan to illustrate what would happen to sexually immoral or uncivilized people. So Pan's horns and cloven hooves and this sort of thing proved to be the archetypal figure now of the devil. And so you, you can look at demons in that sense. And that's a lot of how people look at it. If you were to say demon, most people will conjure up an image of one of these chimera-like creatures with, you know, talons or sharp teeth. So that's one way of looking at it. But then there's another way of looking at it that goes beyond the material sense. And that's this idea of spirits and what does it mean to be inspired and something that's unseen and, and possibly can take alternate shapes and this sort of thing. So I think there's two things at play. And I think the underlying thing is a very real phenomenon that people share. And I was speaking with Whitley Strieber last week about these sorts of things on his show. And he, he is very uniquely qualified to speak about this because of his experience. Right. He's been there. He's been there. And, and it's, it's not one of those things where it's like, Oh, these are little devils or these are clearly just, you know, aliens, or these are, this is, this is something far deeper and, and far more entrenched in the human experience that, you know, something as simple as saying a devil or, or whatever can, can explain. So I think what we're looking at here is a very unique, but real experience that humans have had since the very beginning. And when we see these manifestations in the cultural and physical sense, like statues or uh, paintings or drawings or, or whatnot. I believe these are the human's attempt to give face or, you know, give a figure to these things that they are experiencing. And there's many different ways they can experience them. And I think that 
when we look at some of these cultural artifacts, while they're intriguing and interesting, sometimes they can distract from the underlying truth that is in the in the myths. And so I try to look at the, those truths, and I think that there's definitely something true there, and, and we need to sort of look at that more seriously. And in terms of possessions, who's doing the possessing anyway? Yeah, I mean, I that's that's a great question. And those are things that uh, if you look at history, you'll find accounts of possession going back to the Neolithic era, not necessarily accounts, you know, prehistory. Um, but you, there's evidence to suggest that these people in prehistory believed that they were being possessed due to some of their surgical procedures they would have on their head, one of which was trepanation. They would drill a hole in their head to sort of release these demons oh, from their head. Um, they did it for other reasons as well, to reduce intracranial pressure and uh, in a lot of things that we, we can sort of guess I at. hope they didn't they drill too to, deep, huh? They did. Well, sometimes they, they did. Sometimes they may have. So it was a very dangerous procedure, and no one was guaranteed to live past it. But surprisingly, a lot of people did. And so, you know, there's this idea that that demons, and if you look at these chimera-like figures, again, painted on cave walls, um, they, they could very well be demons or beings that are experienced in sort of a shamanistic trance. And so I think you could call those demons, you know, and, and if you wanted to, we don't know their, um, their intent or their malevolence or mm -hmm. any of this, but we, we can definitely say that there was something that the shamans were seeing that were supernatural in some sense. So you have those prehistoric accounts and, and then, you know, you can actually find accounts as far back in written history as 4,000 years with the Sumerian texts that discuss exorcism in, in great detail a lot of them uh, really, really are reminiscent of the exorcisms that we see now in popular culture. Wow. So with, they go back with, that far. They go back that far. Yeah, in the British Museum, they have medical textbooks from Sumer, um, a collection of about a thousand. And out of the 1,000 that they have, 660 of them reference exorcism. So they looked at it as a medical procedure and a spiritual ex procedure. Um, and they had all sorts of different ways of, of conducting this, but it, it it went really far back. And you know, I cover all this in the in the book. But uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing that it's been something that we've sort of had with us this whole time. And so looking at that, I thought, well, you know, what what about now? <laughs> you know, I, I was brought up Catholic, and so my my vision of an exorcist is, you know, a priest holding the crucifix and some holy water and and this sort of thing. And so I, I challenged myself to look beyond that trope. And I actually found a modern day exorcist and interviewed him in the book, uh, Bill Bean. Oh, Bill's going to join us, by the way, in a few minutes. Oh, no, that's, that's great. Yeah, he's, he's, he's really great. He was very helpful in, in uh, getting me to sort of see the modern context of exorcism and what exorcists go through and, and that sort of thing. And so it's very interesting. It's, it's it's uh it started in prehistory and we're still doing it today. What did the Sumerians do to perform their exorcisms that it would be so different from let's say what the Catholic Church does today? Uh, well, one method is actually maybe a little bit funny. Um, it was the act of modeling clay figures uh, of the demons so that they could have a battle. So they sort of huh. had like a rock'em sock'em robots thing happening. Maybe it was um, the the priest would instruct the patient to make a figurine of the demon, 
And then the patient would raise his hand and say, that unknown ghost, I have made a figurine of him. So again, it's this idea of taking these supernatural or unseen forces and materializing them somehow in this figure. And so then the priest would purify a clay pit. He'd put wheat flour into it. And the next morning would say, I will buy clay from the potter's pit for a representation of what is evil. You pinch off clay and make figurines of the male and female witch. And then the patient would present those figures and pray that the demon takes the clay figure as a substitute. By mistake. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then he he would leave his body. And so he would leave the, the human's body and go into this clay figure because like attracts like. And so the ancient texts actually describe how to make these clay scapegoat figures. Um, and so you, they'd be mixed with clay, tallow, and wax. And so you'd, you'd have to say a little thing three times so that the evil spirits would go into it. And uh, yeah, um, so it, it's it was a little superstitious, but very interesting. And, and it was a, an, an ordeal sort of. Did they work? <laughs> it's well, they believe so. They they really do. They you see this now. Let me say, it, you know, the Sumerians. We we all know by now they were very meticulous in their record keeping and completely on the cutting of cutting edge of all science and technology. I mean, they they knew so much. So these these weren't sort of backwards people. They were highly advanced. And when you find these exorcist texts, they're not in a religious context. Again, they're in, in literal medical textbooks. And so they're treated within the body of scientific research and they're treated very seriously. So they believed this, this was a, a valid method and their experience and their belief said it was, it, it worked enough that they would put it in their textbooks that they would go on to use to instruct the scribe scholars on how to perform these exorcisms and heal patients. So I think it could be argued that it worked. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.